Brian McClanahan Show, episode 173. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. Also, head over to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. And, of course, you'll get all my email lists. I don't send you too many emails, uh, but you do get them about once a week or so. So go on out and head over and do that. Also, go to mclanahanacademy.com and sign up there. Enroll in McClanahan Academy for free. You can do that. It's, it's always free to sign up. And uh, you'll get the best deals when new classes come out. Also, if you do like this podcast, go on over and give me a, a review at iTunes. The more reviews, the better. The better reviews, the better. And it also helps move it up the charts so more people will see The Brian McClanahan Show. And, of course, you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to redbubble.com. Just do a search for my name. You'll come up with all my great apparel. You've got T-shirts. You've got uh, wall clocks. You've got all kinds of cool stuff uh, that you can get at redbubble.com. Okay, well, let's talk about the issue of the day, which, of course, is John McCain. Now, I'm not going to talk about John McCain entirely in this show. In fact, what I'm going to do is talk about something that is also a eulogy. One of the big um, issues is whether Donald Trump should say anything about John McCain. Should he come out and eulogize John McCain? Should he come out with a statement about John McCain? I saw yesterday there was a a video of one of these um, reporters, I believe it was uh, ABC, badgering Donald Trump about 10 times in the, in the course of a day saying, will you comment on Donald, uh, on uh, John McCain? Will you comment on John McCain? This is just annoying. And of course, now we have a push by Chuck Schumer to rename the Richard B. Russell Senate building for John McCain. And so after McCain dies, the eulogies, uh, the, the, uh, look, first of all, when, when all of the mainstream media likes a person and wants you to comment on it favorably, when just less than, about 10 years ago, they had all kinds of nasty things to say about John McCain. You know that something's an issue here. And in fact, uh, you know, Tom Woods has a very, very funny statement. You know, no matter what you get, it's one of his Woods laws. No matter what you, who, no matter who you vote for, if you vote Republican, you end up with John McCain. And this is true. Uh, you know, John McCain uh, is the consummate vanilla candidate. I mean, that's that's what John McCain was most known for: being a vanilla, a vanilla person when it came to politics. He wasn't a statesman. He never really took an issue on anything that was uh, important where he would uh, defend an issue that didn't have some type of popular support for it. So he, he wasn't a state, statesman. Uh, he really wasn't even a very good politician. He wasn't a good political kneecapper. I mean, none of these things work for John McCain. And so the only thing McCain had going for him was his status as a uh, fighter pilot during the Vietnam War, and his reputation based on that. I mean, this is what John McCain lived on. Uh, and I mean, you look at what happened in 2008 when he ran for president, he was crushed, crushed in that, in that election cycle because nobody really likes John McCain politically. Nobody could trust him. Nobody could trust his decisions. He was a war hawk. He was the war hawk of war hawks. Now, some people would call him a neocon, I think more than anything else, McCain was just belligerent. He was a bellicose senator. And so in that particular way, I mean, this is a guy that, uh, uh, in that particular way, this, you know, his, his, 
his policy record was awful. This is a guy that was involved in some of the corruption of the 1990s uh, in the Senate. I mean, he's not a worthy individual when it comes to any type of political accolades that are being foisted upon the man nowadays. And the discussion to rename the Richard B. Russell Senate building is just preposterous. Richard B. Russell, and I, I'm, look, Richard B. Russell was the dominant figure in Washington, D.C. for a very long period of time. And uh, he was a leftist. I mean, Richard B. Russell was a progressive. Uh, and But his legislative track record in terms of things being accomplished and uh, his position of power in the Senate far outstrips John McCain. Whatever you think about Richard B. Russell, whether it's uh, if you don't like his positions on economics or on the general government, if you don't like his positions on race, I mean, he wasn't, Richard B. Russell was not the ardent segregationist uh, that you would, uh, of, of other members of the United States Congress at the time. Um, certainly, Russell was a segregationist, but he was from Georgia in the 1950s and 60s and 40s. I mean, you couldn't have been elected if you weren't. And I think this is an unfair criticism of Russell, considering the, the time period in which he was in Congress and the political climate of Georgia at the time. There, you couldn't have been elected otherwise. So he wouldn't even have been there if he wasn't a segregationist in Georgia at the time. So this is a, a, a poor uh, critique of the man, considering the time period in which he lived. Now, if he was in Congress today and he was a segregationist, well, then you could have a, have a, a legitimate beef against Richard B. Russell. But uh, not, not, in 19, not in the 1950s and 60s when this is what the people of Georgia primarily wanted. So um, it, it's, it's a bad uh, critique. It's not something that uh, anyone would be proud of today. Uh, but certainly his legislative career was one of, if you're going to pick somebody to have a Senate office building, I mean, this guy controlled the Senate. He controlled Washington, D.C. If you go out and know anything about Richard Russell, he controlled Washington, D.C. It wasn't until Lyndon Johnson came in and kneecapped him, politically kneecapped him, that Richard Russell lost some of his power when Johnson was president. But Richard B. Russell was Lyndon Johnson's mentor. So uh, it was said that if you wanted anything in D.C., you went to Richard Russell. Now that is a person, whether you like his politics or not, whether you like what he did or not, if you're going to name a building in the heart of the swamp who, who personified the Leviathan, then you pick Richard Russell. And a guy that really knew how to work in parliamentary procedures, knew how to work people, knew how to do things. He was a consummate politician. Also an individual who could be, at times, a statesman, at times. I mean, Russell was also a war hawk. I mean, fervently supported the Vietnam War uh, at one point, you know, supporting Johnson. So it wasn't like Russell was as free of blemishes. You can't really find him. And in fact, I think you should go back to the antebellum period to really name some buildings if you want to find some, some worthwhile senators. In fact, I'm going to talk about one. Now, this would never happen today because of the political climate. But at the time, and even, even in the 1960s, this individual is recognized as a great U.S. senator. And, of course, I'm talking about John C. Calhoun. Um, now, just by saying that you support John C. Calhoun today is <gasps> shocking. How can you support this guy? Well, John C. Calhoun is probably, arguably, the most important man who ever was in the Senate. Now, maybe you could say Henry Clay. Maybe you could say Daniel Webster. 
one of those individuals, perhaps, you could list as a more important senator. And certainly people have. Uh, But John F. Kennedy thought John C. Calhoun was one of the most important U.S. senators ever. And he was right about that. He was right about that. Uh, Calhoun um, defined a generation. And while we may not agree with everything he did, we do not agree with everything he said about particular on particular issues, it's without question that John C. Calhoun is someone who should be respected in Washington, D.C., if nothing short, if nothing for nothing else, he was a statesman in a time of statesmen. And I'm going to talk about a eulogy. So we mentioned eulogies, you know, all this part. They needed to say something about John. Somebody needed to say something about John McCain. Trump needed to go out and lower the flag to half. I mean, all this stuff is just political posturing. It's just stupidity. It's just something that for the media to complain about when it comes to a sitting president. It really means nothing. And, and uh, the fact is, we don't always do this stuff when, when uh, you know, people die. It's just, it's uh, not necessary. Uh, but, again, because of the political climate we're in, uh, it's it's some you know John McCain becomes a lightning rod because he opposed President Trump. So that's why the media is running around trying to you know making themselves look foolish, trying to get Donald Trump to comment on a particular issue he's not going to comment on, and that's his prerogative. But when you look at a eulogy and someone that uh, when you you talk about some political adversaries and you look at what they said about each other, there's no better eulogy of of John C. Calhoun than from Daniel Webster. Now we have to put this within context. John C. Calhoun died in 1850, almost, I mean, during the period of time that the Compromise of 1850 was being debated. And uh, Calhoun was, had tuberculosis, he was very sick, couldn't even deliver his own speech on the Compromise of 1850 because he was too sick to do it. And when he died, the outpouring of uh, respect for, for Calhoun was, I think, larger than just about anyone else who ever served in the Senate. During his lifetime, Calhoun, of course, made many political enemies. He was not a man who was uh, afraid to speak his mind and take a position that was unpopular or at least lead when a position was unpopular. And the thing that Calhoun is most known for is his positive good speech, which was delivered in 1837 in the Senate, and this particular speech was delivered at a time when the uh, agitation over the slavery issue was in its infancy in some ways. Now, of course, in the 1830s, you had the large number of petitions being submitted to the Congress to abolish slavery, and uh, these things were being tabled. We had the gag rule. We had all these things going on. Uh, uh, And Calhoun was speaking at a time when the debate was in its infancy. And he said, look, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to go over the positive good speech, but basically he was saying, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about this. Let's get it out there in the open. Let's talk about it. If we're going to talk about slavery as an as an evil, it needs to be abolished right now. But no one's willing to do that. So what are we talking about here? Calhoun actually said, if it's got to go, it's got to go now. If this thing is inherently an evil, then it's got to go right now. There's no question about it. It has to be abolished today. But no one, even in the North, was really willing to do that. 
So what are we talking about? That is the mark of a statesman. Somebody who's willing to call out the other side for their hypocrisy and realizing that this was a political issue all about power. This is what Calhoun essentially was pointing out by making that particular speech. Now, we can certainly disagree with the position of slavery as a positive good. That's out of step with what any rational, right-thinking person thinks today. But in the 1830s, and a man of his time, this was a different debate in a different time. This is also a man who uh, was uh, interested in bridging the gap between sides at times. I mean, he is not, in fact, Calhoun was not considered to be a purist enough for the old Republicans. He was also a great speaker. This is a guy that, in my estimation, won a debate with Daniel Webster during the nullification crisis of the 1830s. Now, we often talk about the Webster-Hain debate, but really the Webster-Calhoun debate was more important. And Calhoun won that debate. So his, of course, he served as vice president of the United States, secretary of state, secretary of, of, uh, of war, I believe. Uh, he was just an important person, served in the House of Representatives, just an important person uh, in the entire history of the United States government. If anyone deserves any building nom- named after him, it would be John C. Calhoun. And I think it's, you know the, the character of a man, and you know how important they were, when the praise comes from the other side in a way that is not supportive of their positions, but is supportive of who they were as a statesman, particularly when that praise is coming from who most considered to be, an individual most considered to be a statesman themselves. And that would be Daniel Webster. Now, the uh, Richard Current book on Daniel Webster, I think, is the best ever written. It's a little, tiny little biography. It's a political biography, and he shows Webster's inconsistencies. Um, but Webster was also uh, someone who fervently supported the positions of his constituents. For example, at one point, Webster was a, believed in nullification. Webster hinted at secession. Webster was anti-tariff because his constituents were anti-tariff, and then he became pro-tariff when his constituents became pro-tariff. This is Daniel Webster was representing his section. Daniel Webster was always a sectionalist for Massachusetts and New England. That's what he was. He was never really a statesman. I think you can make a case that, in, in that way, I think you can make a case that Calhoun was much more a statesman than anybody else because he always had the interest of union in mind. Now, Webster would have, this, would have that similar position uh, as he got older, and certainly Webster was more independent than Henry Clay, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Webster and Calhoun did have something in common. Uh, neither one really wanted Henry Clay to lead anything. Um, in fact, when you got to the Tyler administration, Webster hung on in the Tyler administration because he didn't want to be, uh, uh, he didn't want to ride Henry Clay's coattails. He wanted to show an independent streak, and this is why he hung on as Secretary of State, even when everyone else had resigned from Tyler's cabinet, because he wanted to show he was not. Uh, Henry Clay's whipping boy. I mean, Daniel Webster was Daniel Webster. So, uh, it's important to understand Daniel Webster, but it's also important to understand the relationship these two men had. They were staunch political adversaries. There was nobody 
that would that disagreed with John C. Calhoun more in the Senate than Daniel Webster. I mean, Daniel Webster stood up in the 1830s and essentially called Calhoun a disunionist, someone who believed in what amounted to treason. Of course, he ignored the fact that he also believed in secession and nullification just about 20 years before this, but that didn't matter. He, he leveled all kinds of political attacks against John C. Calhoun, but when the man died, Webster gave a very short speech, one of the best ever delivered in respect of an individual who he considered to be a giant in American political history. And his praise is some of the best. And Richard Brookheiser had commented um, that uh, you know, Jackson's statement at the passing of uh, John Marshall was one that uh, you know Jackson and Marshall did not necessarily see eye to eye. And, uh, but when Marshall died, Jackson made a very nice statement about uh, John Marshall. And so uh, he thought that was something to be discussed. And I said, look, no, it's, it's Daniel Webster that you really have to look at in his praise of John C. Calhoun. If you want to find a speech where two guys really didn't like each other politically, but yet had a tremendous respect for each other individually, and Webster realized what Calhoun meant to the Union. He realized what he meant to the Union. So he gave this speech right after Calhoun's death. Um, And I'm going to read some of this because I think it's just a beautiful speech. It's a beautiful eulogy, and it's something that people need to know about. And I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of Daniel Webster, uh, I think you can you can place New England sectionalism as a as a uh, as the bedrock of the differences between North and South. They had always been agitating. The South was generally interested more in a real union. The North was always interested in its own section. But regardless, I mean that's my opinion on things, and so you can take that for what it's worth. But I want to read what Webster said about Calhoun. Uh, He says, quote, I hope the Senate will indulge me in adding a very few words to what has been said. My apology for this presumption and the very long acquaintance which has subsisted between Mr. Calhoun and myself. We are of the same age. I made my first entrance into the House of Representatives in May 1813 and there found Mr. Calhoun. He had already been in that body for two or three years. I found him to be an active and efficient member of the Assembly in which to which he belonged, taking a decided part and exercising a decided influence in all his deliberations. From that day to the day of his death, amidst all the strifes of party and politics, there has subsisted between us always, and without interruption, a great degree of personal kindness. This is not the Calhoun that you often see and with the hair combed back. I mean, the image you get of Calhoun is an an is an animal, basically, a man that was unflinching, mean, never told a joke. This is the kind of things you hear about Calhoun, but this is what Webster is saying. He's a man of personal kindness. Quote, differing widely on many great questions, respecting the institutions and government of the country, these differences never interrupted our personal and social intercourse. I have been present at most of the distinguished instances of the exhibition of his talents in debate. I have always heard him with pleasure, often with much instruction, not unfrequently with the highest degree of admiration. This is Daniel Webster. 
saying that he learned from John C. Calhoun, as many did. Mr. Calhoun was calculated to be a leader in whatsoever association of political friends he was thrown. He was a leader. You cannot say the same thing about John McCain. But Calhoun was. McCain just went with the ebb and tide of things. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't a leader at all. Quote, he was a man of undoubted genius and of commanding talent. All the country and all the world admit that. His mind was both perceptive and vigorous. It was clear, quick, and strong. All the world still admits John C. Calhoun's genius to this day. I remember Clyde Wilson telling me that he would have people come to his office from all over the world to talk about John C. Calhoun because he was one of the only individuals who ever served in the United States government who really was a political philosopher, who had his own, who developed his own political philosophy while in office. When you look at what Calhoun said about the concurrent majority and how to arrest the tyranny of the majority, how, how when you look at politics and things, nobody else came up with stuff like this, but Calhoun did. He was a, a, a political thinker and someone who had unique political thoughts. Webster continues, Sir, the eloquence of Mr. Calhoun, or the manner of his exhibition of his sentiments in public bodies, was part of his intellectual character. It grew out of the qualities of his mind. It was plain, strong, terse, condensed, concise, sometimes impassioned, still always severe. Rejecting ornament, not often speaking, I'm sorry, not often seeking, far for illustration, his power consisted in the plainness of his propositions, in the closeness of his logic, and the earnestness and energy of his manner. These are the qualities, as I think, which have enabled him through such a long course of years to speak often and yet always command attention. His demeanor as a senator is known to us all, is appreciated, venerated by us all. No man was more respectful to others. That's not what you often hear about John C. Calhoun. No man carried himself with greater decorum. No man with superior dignity. I think there is not one of us but felt when he last addressed us from his seat in the Senate, his form still erect, with a voice by no means indicating such a degree of physical weakness as did, in fact, possess him with clear tones and an impressive, and I may say an imposing manner, who did not feel that he might imagine that we saw before us a senator of Rome when Rome survived. That is, without question, one of the highest praises anyone has ever leveled, ever leveled on anyone else in the Senate. No one is saying anything about John McCain in that particular way. McCain made bad speeches. McCain was not a statesman. McCain didn't elevate anything. McCain was simply a person that you could count on, the maverick supposedly, to stir trouble. And I think in some ways for McCain's own personal satisfaction and glorification. But 
Again, these are opinions. Webster continues, Sir, I have not in public nor in private life known a more assiduous person in the discharge of his appropriate duties. I have known no man who wasted less of life in what is called recreation or employed less of it in any pursuits not connected with the immediate discharge of his duty. He seemed to have no recreation but the pleasure of conversation with his friends. Out of the chambers of Congress, he was either devoting himself to the acquisition of knowledge pertaining to the immediate subject of the duty before him, or else he was indulging in those social interviews in which he so much delighted. My honorable friend from Kentucky has spoken in just terms of his colloquial talents. There certainly were singular, they certainly were singular and eminent. There was a charm in his conversation not often found. A charm. That's not what you hear about Calhoun. You hear he's a guy that was humorless. Again, somebody who was just straightforward and didn't say anything. But Webster calls him charming. He delighted especially in conversation and intercourse with young men. I suppose that there has been no man among us who had more winning manners in such an intercourse and conversation with men comparatively young than Mr. Calhoun. I believe one great power of his character in general was his conversational talent. I believe it is that, as well as a conscious, consciousness of his high integrity and the greatest reverence for his intellect and ability that has made him so endeared as an object to the people of the state to which he belonged. So Calhoun was not just someone, a cranky old curmudgeon who went out there and was bitter and mean. He was a great conversationalist, someone who was kind, with a great intellect, someone who had manners, a real southern gentleman. That was John C. Calhoun. But that's not the image you get. This is what Daniel Webster is saying about the man, and I think he was telling the truth and what he believed. Mr. President, he has had the basis, the indispensable basis, of all high character, and that was unspotted integrity, unimpeached honor, and character. Could you say the same thing about John McCain? If he had aspirations, they were high and honorable and noble. There was nothing groveling or low or meanly selfish that came near the head or the heart of Mr. Calhoun. Firm in his purpose, perfectly patriotic and honest, as I am sure he was in the principles that he espoused and in the measures that he defeated, aside from the large regard for that species of distinction that conducted him to eminent stations for the benefit of the Republic, I do not believe he had a selfish motive or selfish feeling. But that's not the image you get of Calhoun today. Everything was selfish. He was just selfish. He was selfish. He just was a sectionalist. He was selfish about everything. This is not what Daniel Webster is saying. However, sir, he may have differed from others in his use, it, uh, others of us, I'm sorry, in his political opinions or his political principles. Those principles and those opinions will now descend to posterity under the sanction of a great name. He has lived long enough, he has done enough, and he has done it so well, so successfully, so honorably, as to connect himself for all time with the records of his country. He is now a historical character. Those of us who have known him here will find that he has left upon our minds and our hearts a strong and lasting impression of his person, his character, and his public performance, which, while we live, will never be obliterated. 
We shall hereafter, I am sure, indulge in it as a grateful recollection that we have lived in his age, that we have been his contemporaries, that we have seen him and heard him and known him. We shall live in his age, the age of Calhoun. Huh? This is what Webster said. This is not the age of Jackson. It's the age of Calhoun. We shall delight to speak of him to those who are rising up to fill our places. And when the time shall come when we ourselves shall go, one after another, in succession to our graves, we shall carry with us a deep sense of his genius and character, his honor and integrity, and the purity of his exalted patriotism. Now that is high praise. They lived in the age of Calhoun. He was the last of the Romans. He was a senator of Rome when Rome survived. This is heaping praise. Praise that you would not expect unless you understand who Calhoun was as a man. And that's why I said there's no better eulogy than what has been said by Daniel Webster for John C. Calhoun. Webster put aside his political differences. Webster put aside their differences on sectionalism, union, whatever it, whatever it was. And he gave this eulogy, his arch-political enemy. McCain didn't have any arch-political enemies besides, well, I mean, did he really? I mean, this is why everybody liked John McCain. There were no arch-political enemies to John McCain. I mean, you could say Donald Trump, which is why uh, maybe Trump isn't saying anything. Eh, you know, we can say that says something about Trump's character. Fine. But the fact that the man had no enemies who were willing to stand up and say John McCain was uh, somebody who was my political enemy shows what John McCain really was. He was a man of an LOI. He was nothing when it came to principles. He really was nothing. Calhoun was principled. Webster was principled. And these two men could see the value in each. The value in each other. And they had a warm friendship. That's not something you find today. So I wanted to read that eulogy because it is an important historical document and it says a lot about John C. Calhoun. When people were talking about tearing down memorials to Calhoun and running Calhoun's name through the dirt, they should pick up Daniel Webster's eulogy and say, wow, this is what Daniel Webster said about the guy? Most people have never heard this document or never seen it, and it's important that we have it out there. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.